Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Hello and welcome to the Modern Adventurer podcast, where explorers and adventurers tell their stories. Coming up. And pretty much all night, I would just refill them and sleep with them. By the, f- I didn't even sleep in the tent. I just curled up by the fire. So you can imagine kind of what state I was in by the end of a month. But yeah, I it just got so cold at times. It was scary, like really, really cold. I mean, it would go down to minus 10, minus 15. It was really bad. I'm John Horsfall, and on this weekly podcast, we talk to adventurers and explorers from around the world who have incredible stories to tell. From Everest climbers to polar explorers, world record holders, and many more. I hope that this podcast inspires you to explore and go on your own grand adventure. But what is left for the modern adventurers in the 21st century? Let's find out. My next guest is an adventurer and an incredible storyteller. She recreated Alexandra David Neal's incredible 12-year journey to Tibet, telling the story and recreating the adventure she had up in the Indian mountains towards Tibet, wearing exactly the same sort of clothes that she would have worn back in the day. Today on the podcast, we talk about these adventures, what it was like recreating these stories and wearing the same clothes that they wore back 100 years ago. So I am delighted to introduce Elise, welcome to the show. Ah, thanks very much for having me. Well, it's an absolute pleasure. And what I absolutely love your, about your story is the extremes you go to to sort of look back in history and then recreate these incredible adventures through these books that you've read. Before we sort of jump into that, probably the best place to start is at the beginning. And how did this all sort of come about, reading these books and getting into these adventures? Yeah, so I don't really remember how I stumbled across the first book. So it was by Alexandra David Neal, who actually most people I speak to don't really know who she is. And I came across her book when I was about 16. And um, I read it and I just thought, wow, this is amazing that this woman's done this. So she was quite famous for a 14-year journey through Asia, um, where she left Europe in about 1912 and travelled all through Asia just to get into Tibet, where she could learn more Buddhism. Because obviously back then, you know, there wasn't the internet, there wasn't, you didn't have a phone. So you actually had to go and, you know, find these things out for yourself. Um, And I was just so amazed reading that book. You know, it's actually just the last six months of this 14-year journey, but she touches on, you know, how gruelling that trip was, how ill she got, how long it was. Um, She had to do things like sleep and cold mountain passes with just her coat. And I just read it and I was like, I just don't know how she did this. And also, like, why don't I know about this woman already? Like, why wasn't I taught about her at school? Because she's so inspiring. And then, yeah, I read that book. And I just, after that, I just always had it in my mind that I wanted to recreate her journey in some way. Then I didn't think I'll do it without modern equipment but yeah I always wanted to do it and then about yeah 12 years later I decided 
it was kind of time to do it. I kind of went back to the book and reread her story and thought, you know, I think people need to know about this woman. And I really need to highlight, especially in a bit of a man's world, like how epic her journey was and what she actually managed to achieve. So because a lot of people, when they sort of recreate these stories, uh, as I was saying before, they sort of say, oh, well, I've got the socks from 1912, but underneath I have the North Face jacket. You go for the real extremes, right down to everything, the small hot water bottles, the alpaca coats. So for people listening, why don't you tell us how the sort of planning of these this adventure sort of came about? Yeah, so obviously it's not, I couldn't just Google this stuff because back then, so women like Alexandra, they were already fighting to be taken seriously. So in their writing, they would never put, you know, if they felt vulnerable or weak or what they were wearing under their, they only just say undergarments and then whatever their coat is because they want to be taken seriously. So they're not going to talk about things like that. So I ended up doing so much research into what they actually had in 1912. Um, And it's quite surprising like what they actually did have back then. Um, But yeah, I ended up going down to the same like bra and pants that she would have had. So like rocket bras and yeah, like cotton undergarments and things like that. So yeah, I I decided that I think to do her journey justice and to kind of show how difficult it was, it would never have been the same if I was in, you know, like a North Face jacket. I would have never felt what she felt and I would never be able to highlight, you know, the amazing journey that she did. So yeah, I ended up researching, reading all her books, actually going back to, you know, olden days when there was no internet. And um, yeah, just reading through and I picked out everything that she mentioned. So she had, yeah, hot water bottles, like a wooden bowl, kettle, matches, all these little things, um, her yak wool coat. So I ended up just picking all those out and um, yeah, going, going with that. <laughs> what was the sort of kick for this journey? What sort of kicked you into action 12 years later to really pursue it? Yeah, so I'd actually, I'm always very open about this, but I actually had really bad panic attacks, like all through my 20s to the point where um, it still actually does really affect my life now, but they would be so bad, like I couldn't go to work and I had to get loads of therapy and go on medication and stuff. And actually, while I was going through that, I reread this book because to me, it was so brave. I really struggled with doing things, like even getting a bus for me, which sounds crazy to someone who's never had anything like this. But the amount of physical symptoms that brings up, so like your legs would shake, I'd be totally dizzy, I wouldn't be able to see properly. And for me reading this book, you know, she must have been so brave back then just to kind of leave everything behind. So you know what, I don't want to be a traditional, I don't want to have a traditional woman's life, I'm just going to go off. And the amount of people that, you know, must have fought back and thought she was crazy. And I think actually reading that and thinking, oh, you know what, if she can do that back then when she would have gone, she wouldn't have even known where she was going. You know, she wouldn't have had, she maybe would have seen a photo from India. Like that was all she would have seen. Um, So it actually really helped me. And then after that, yeah, I just thought when I started to feel a bit better, I thought now's the time. Um, So I sort of started putting the feelers out, seeing if I could plan a route and get a bit of sponsorship. And then kind of before I knew it, I was, I was going, (laughs) I was off. (laughs) And so how how did it feel arriving in India, was it? Yeah. Arriving in India, heading up into the mountains, first day, what was the sort of feeling like? 
You know, the thing I was most worried about was that wearing the old clothes, because I'm quite, um, obviously, because I was quite a quite nervous person anyway, I thought everyone's going to be looking at me, they're going to wonder. Oh, so I built, um, actually built the old backpack I had out of an old chair because I kind of run out of my money by the point I went to buy like a 1912 backpack and they're really expensive. They're like 500 to 800 quid. So I ended up doing loads of research, like what does a backpack actually look like? And I built my own. So I had like this chair on my back with a basket, all these old clothes. And I was just really self-conscious more than anything. But you know what? It's fine. No one even blinked an eyelid. <laughs> <laughs> so it was kind of that. And I just, the whole thing, you know, organizing a trip like this is, it's actually, I think, harder than actually doing the trip. So I had, because we went to Sikkim, which is a really small little bit of India at the top, and it's a really sensitive area because it's so small. And we had to get like five different permits. We weren't allowed satellite phones or drones or anything like that. So organising it was a bit of a nightmare. Um, So actually, when I was there, it was quite a relief (laughs) that I'd actually made it. Um, But yeah, I was probably just, I think, a bit overwhelmed, to be honest, when I got there. (laughs) And so how was the sort of experience of, because I don't know, when I try on stuff from 1912 or 1920, which is very rare, I have to say. I don't, I, she. I, I don't, yes, that's basically what I was trying to get at. Isn't it really itchy? <laughs> yeah, and I've actually got a picture of my, by the end, so I was there for a month um, in these old clothes and I just had a rash all over my body because also it was, the weather was, it was freezing, but in the morning, it was actually really sunny every morning. So from about 7am till 12, it was really sunny. So I'd be walking and I'd be getting really hot. And then after 12, the clouds would come in and it would be freezing. So I think my skin was just going through so many different temperatures and, you know, sweating, then not sweating. And then, yeah, wool and it, yeah, it wasn't pretty. Um, I actually had to put my arms in the cold like glacial rivers quite a lot and that really helped because it put the itching down but just shows I guess like what they you know what people back in the day went through when they did these things God, yeah and I mean up in the sort of Indian mountains towards sort of Tibet is some of the most beautiful scenery and the imagery you must have seen on a day-to-day although itching and freezing cold at times was probably was probably absolutely breathtaking. Yeah, and I still learned to appreciate it. So obviously the first two weeks I was just completely out of it, you know, like trying to deal with everything that was going on. And then because I didn't have any modern stuff, I would go, you know, there'd be a beautiful mountain or the sun would be setting or something amazing. And to begin with, I'd go for my phone and to be like, oh, I'll take a picture. But then I realised I didn't have it. So actually, I really, really, I think, appreciated it a lot more because I just had my eyes and my mind to look at, to look at everything. And I remember that trip so vividly. I mean, obviously, I was doing something a bit crazy, but also I remember it more than anything else, any holiday I've ever been on, anything like that. And I actually put that down to not having anything modern to distract me and to just really... I don't know, engaging with my surroundings and really feeling it as well. I think that's what the clothes did. Um, I really felt that weather. <laughs> um, and I would like be freezing cold at night, just waiting for the morning, just sitting up with my hot water bottle, waiting for the sun. So obviously then I really, you know, started loving the sun. And yeah, it was really interesting actually doing it that way and how it changes your relationship with what's around you. 
I suppose also sort of being in the moment gave you that time to sort of reflect and take it all in. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, and we did a lot. So we were all day long, we were kind of walking and walking, which again gives you, you know, a lot of time to kind of think and look around. And once I'd got everything on, I was a bit of a pack horse, to be honest, I had everything that she would have had on me. But once I was going, you know, it's just all that time to kind of, yeah, reflect and take in. And obviously I had her book with me, so I was reading what she would have written when she was there. And yeah, it was amazing. It was amazing. And food? Was that quite difficult or was it very much sort of buying local food uh, from the, well, from the locals, of course, but was it, was it sort of difficult to get, get hold of? No, not really. Um, so I did what she did and she would just go into people's houses along the way and give them a bit of money and they'd cook a food. So we took quite a lot of food with us. So I tried to keep the team, I think, because this whole project for me is kind of about inspiring women and showing what these amazing women of the past did. I tried to keep the whole team female. So I had a female mountain guide and I had Emily who came along and filmed it. Um, but female porters aren't a thing in India. They are in Nepal, I think now. Um, but we were joined by five like amazing guys from Lachin, which is this really amazing town, like nestled deep in the Himalayas. Um, most beautiful place so they came with us and they carried sort of emergency equipment camera stuff um bits of food but we shared it all out between us um and yeah we just cooked as we went and we also stayed in as we passed people's houses we just ate amazing like potato curry basically which they were all cooking which was incredible and get to meet people a lot of tibetan refugees in that area as well so they all have amazing kind of stories and lovely like gentle beautiful people so yeah that's kind of what we did for food which was amazing because that's what she would have exactly what she did as well so and also I suppose when you are up in the mountains not much probably has changed in those hundred years yeah exactly and I so when we got to her cave I this is where it really hit me so her cave was really important part of her story because she she was actually the first Western woman to meet the Dalai Lama and he told her she needed to learn Tibetan and practice more Buddhism. So she basically got herself a teacher who was um, a really high Buddhist in Lachin and they went and she lived in one cave for two years and he lived in the other and she basically meditated there, um, learned her Tumo breathing, which kept her warm, which is only how she kept warm, I've discovered, because I couldn't do that. Um and yeah and so when I was in her cave looking out I was actually thinking you know this landscape it won't have changed in a hundred years and India the country and our surroundings everything you know culturally it's changed loads so Sikkim was its own country until 1975 so when she was there it was completely different but yeah looking at the mountains I was like this is amazing because this is exactly what she would have been looking at and what's the sort of moment that you look back on that trip where was the sort of one of the amazing moments that really stuck out for you? I think so. The whole point of doing that bit of the trip. So I did the very first bit of her 14 year journey. Um, and this was where she got the first views of Tibet and it kind of triggered her the rest of the 14 years, you know, going, I need to get into this country because Tibet, it was very closed off as it is now. You can't just you couldn't travel around freely. So she went up this path to look over and to try and find a way in. Um, so that's why I wanted to do this bit. <clears throat> and actually the main point where you can look over 
and see into Tibet is um, near Mount Kanchenjunga, which is the third highest peak in the world, which I didn't even know was there. Like it's up there with Everest um, in these like in this bit of Sikkim. Like it's crazy. So that was the bit where we were trying to aim to get to. And it was kind of the last bit of the trip. And so much had happened before we got there, but we managed to kind of climb up the side of this called the Zumu Glacier so it comes all the way down from Mount Kanchenjunga it's like absolutely amazing so we climbed all the way up there and the end and got the the same views that she would have had all those years ago across into Nepal and Tibet so that was definitely the highlight and also because we thought at quite a lot of points we weren't going to make it (laughs) so just being there was yeah pretty pretty great. (laughs) And so she took what 12 years to do this? Uh, yeah, not that bit of the, the journey. So no, she was, no, but yeah, the entire, trip. the entire trip. Yeah. She took 14 years basically cause she just kept, she went through China. She went all different ways, just trying to get into Tibet. And every time she got to a border, they would turn her away or she'd be like, someone would tell on the British and they'd come and get her and bring her out. Um, so yeah, she just, and that's another thing, just persistence, 14 years of trying. Um, and eventually she managed to get in and she disguised herself as there's lots of pilgrims that go into Lhasa, um, Buddhist pilgrims. So she kind of dressed as a man and covered her face in certain, and obviously she could speak the language at the time. So she managed to disguise herself and get in and read these ancient Buddhist doctrines, which obviously no one else had ever seen before. Um, so, yeah. Wow. Did you have any sort of scary times? Yeah, I think uh, mainly it was the cold. Um, Cause obviously I was in an old canvas tent. I had my yak wool coat and then I was just sleeping in blankets, which is all I could find that she had. But luckily she had the two hot water bottles and pretty much all night I would just refill them and sleep with them by the, f- I didn't even sleep in the tent. I just curled up by the fire. So you can imagine kind of what state I was in by the end of a month. Um, but yeah, I, it just got so cold at times. It was scary, like really, really cold. I mean, it would go down to minus 10, minus 15. It was really bad. And then, um, and I, I like the warm, <laughs> I like being on a beach. So for me, it's a real shock because I'd never actually been to mountains like that before. And the hot water bottles saved me. I mean, I didn't sleep much because I was just by the fire all night, making sure it didn't go out. And then also when you get above a certain altitude that the trees were going. So that was, I was walking around kind of collecting sticks manically, just thinking, God, if we get any high, I'm not going to be able to have a fire. Um, So I think it was the cold. Um, Yeah, there were times where I was so cold. Yeah, it was it was scary. Because up there, what sort of altitude are you at? Uh, we went up to like five thousand one hundred, I think. Um, which obviously, if you kind of do it slowly, it, it's fine. Um, but we did feel basically all the different permits in Sikkim they all got a bit mixed up, so we had to do a different bit of the trip first. So we ended up going really high quite quickly, which I know absolutely you shouldn't do, but we didn't really have a choice. Um, so yeah, the first week was, we were all quite sick to be honest. Um, but yeah, I mean, yeah, about 5,000, which is high and it means you just, I mean, I was going slow anyway, walking, but yeah, it it was slow, slow going. And you were there for how long? Um, a month. God, wow. And, and I suppose sort of coming back, did you feel, because as you said, you suffered with anxiety did that sort of help, not cure it, but 
uh, alleviate it in a sense? Well, yeah, you know what? I really thought it would. And I, I thought, oh, I've done this amazing thing now. You know, I can do anything. And then I actually got back and I just, you know, it was almost worse than ever. It was, it was crazy. But I think it was just such a big change, you know, and actually over, you know, over the next few months it definitely helped but initially getting back I mean you might know if you've been on sort of long trips it's a big assault on the sense especially if you've been in the mountains with no no equipment and no one talking to you it's quite overwhelming yeah I, I always find when you sort of been out in the countryside and then you come back to a city it's incredibly overwhelming probably for people listening it's like in a sense, lockdown, you were three months not being able to see anyone, talk to anyone, and then suddenly be chucked into a birthday party. Yeah, like, yeah. Oh my <laughs> word. Yeah, it does really <laughs> affect how do I you. React? Yeah. So, yeah, it was a bit of a shock coming back. But I think in the long term, then, yeah, it's definitely obviously helped a lot. Um, yeah. But yeah, I always say to people, you know, you don't need to, don't need to go and walk through the Himalayas with a chair on your back to kind of get through your anxiety and help you know even if you just have a walk in the park like anything like that is good um but yeah you don't need to do what I did <laughs> <laughs> although it sounds like the most incredible adventure yeah it was it was amazing um life-changing I'd say um yeah. and yeah and just the people I met and Jangu who was my feet the guide that I found she was absolutely amazing and actually was told by so many people, you'll never find a female mountain guide in India. It's not something that women there do. And I looked for months and months and then <clears throat> actually a friend of a friend of a friend knew someone who might know someone. And um, yeah, ended up being put in touch with her and she was incredible, you know, really blazing the way for women. And she's now opened a homestay that has kind of a training school for girls who want to be mountain guides um she's really like blazing the trails for women out there so yeah she's um yeah a friend for life so yeah I'm also really inspiring in so many ways that was your first sort of big trip in a sense or reading up about past inspirational female adventurers from the past let's say and then you went into Nan Shepherd the living mountain yeah so I wanted to do someone closer to home and I'd always known of this book and my mum gave me a copy she was like you have to read this it's amazing and I read it and I thought oh I need to do that I need to go and find these places and try and understand this book on a, on a deeper level of what Nan would have um, kind of experienced while she was writing it and then the more I looked into it the more amazing her story was you know she'd put that book in a drawer for 70 years or something because no one would publish it at the time because it was an unusual format it was she wasn't taken that seriously um and yeah eventually it got published and it's this sort of masterpiece um and a really really sort of celebrated book now um so yeah so I wanted to do something closer also again because a lot of people I know hadn't really heard of Nan Shepherd um even though she's on the she's on the new Scottish five pound note now um even when I was there and I said oh do, to people oh do you know who this woman is no one really knew um but yeah, she's amazing, has an amazing story. And I'd also never been to Scotland. Could you believe it? So I just really wanted to go. <laughs> so yeah. I, I only discovered her actually on this podcast because we had Jenny Tuff on an episode three and it was her favourite book. Yeah. And I'd never sort of heard about it. And then your story as well of 
trying to recreate Nan Shepherd's experience in the in Scotland was just incredible. Yeah, and I think I just because that trip was more I didn't have a planned route because she just writes about different locks and different places and so I just went round with the book. It had all my stuff on my back and I just went round and found all the places that she talks about in the book and it was really amazing to kind of be there and again with the old clothes. So she wrote that at the end of the Second World War and it was actually going into the mountains was her kind of escape from all the horrors that were going on. And I think that's why that book is so strong and powerful because all that was going on around her. But I ended up searching like what she would have had to eat. And then obviously it was the war. So everything was rationed. Um, But again, I was really surprised. So there was Mars bars. They were around. Um, Things like this. They had they had tampons. They had all this lip balm. So I was like, great, I can take all this this stuff with me. Um, So, yeah. And then I just kind of wandered around in this old tweed coat, um, again, very itchy, um, and this old sort of army tent and found all the places that she writes about. Um, and again, in the old clothes, it was amazing because it was just sideways raining when I first got there. And I just I was like, this is miserable. This is horrible. But actually, after a few days, I really kind of learned after reading the book, she kind of talks about the ecosystem and how everything has its place and in the end I kind of thought actually yeah like the rain is here because it's doing something so I, I shouldn't hate the rain and things like that and all this stuff you know became a bit of a it was like a mindfulness journey <laughs> yeah wow and so for people listening you know going back to sort of 1940 what um what sort of food were you eating when you were up there Apart from deep fat fried Mars bars. Yeah, yeah. Oh, they weren't deep fried, unfortunately. Um, and also, I think I took a little few too many Mars bars because they were rationed, right? You got the tiniest bit, but I had a whole, <laughs> I had a whole thing. So maybe I cheated a little bit. Um, but no, it's like potatoes, jam, eggs, oats, that kind of... I just made stews, like carrots, things like that. And actually, that was the best bit of the day, getting my little army stove out and um, cooking up my carrots and my potatoes <laughs> and having a wash in the in the river um, and the locks. But yeah, it was after the initial week of the torrential rain and sideways wind. Um, yeah, it actually, the sun came out and it was the most incredible experience. It was incredible. That, that whole landscape in the Cairngorms is amazing. Um, yeah, I went swam in the locks and did everything that there's an amazing passage in the living mountain where she goes naked into one of the locks so I did that as well just on my own like in the middle of nowhere um so yeah it was really incredible wow god yeah Scotland has a habit of throwing up some extreme weather from time to time I thought it'd be warmer in June (laughs) that's why I chose June (laughs) was that the sort of same as Nan Shepherd? Well, she she actually lived there. So that was the little difference is that she she had a house there, but she'd wander across, you know, the whole Kangol Plateau for days, but she did it over a lifetime. Um, so, yeah, so I just went for three weeks, I think it was in the end. Um, so, yeah, so she would have kind of kept going back all the time. But, yeah, I just immersed myself in the three weeks I had. <laughs> What was the sort of feelings like between Scotland and India in terms of recreating these two stories? The themes, did you say? The feelings. Oh, the feelings. Yeah, um, they were really different, actually. Um, 
I think India, because it was the first one, it was really overwhelming. And I think the whole time I was just kind of overwhelmed. And I'd never been to that kind of scenery. I'd never really seen anything like that. So the whole thing was just not overwhelming in a bad way. Just everything was, I was just fascinating. And I don't really know how to explain it. Just overwhelming, I think is the word. But with the Scotland one, I was a bit more confident in myself and I kind of knew a bit more about what I was doing so I think I had a bit more time to appreciate it and also India it was manic we had a lot of ground to cover so we were walking for eight or nine hours a day constantly so by the time we kind of set up camp and I made my fire I'd just pass out on the floor so I didn't have that much time I guess for reflection or to write my journal whereas in Scotland I had all the time in the world because I was just wandering around on my own pace and that was the the hardest thing at first was actually just learning to be still. And I'd be sitting there with no modern stuff thinking, oh, what do I do now? I've set up camp. Like, what do I do? And by the end, I just learned to just sit there, literally just sit and look around. Um, and I've definitely taken that from that trip. You know, how often do you just sit on your sofa and just do nothing? And I've tried to kind of bring that into my life now where you don't have to be doing something all the time it's fine to just sit um yeah and appreciate things I suppose and I did a lot more writing on on that trip because I had the time I kind of went to bed when the sun did and got up when the sun rose so yeah it was they were really different really different trips (laughs) I suppose it's sort of like a form of meditation just being there with your thoughts and breathing without the sort of stimulation of you know, modern comms of your phone, TV, computer, whatever. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And also I find walking is quite meditative as well. Um, So the whole thing, yeah, it was just like one, (laughs) maybe it was my pilgrimage to the mountains. (laughs) I don't know, but I came back actually feeling very zen, I have to say. Yeah, very clear headed. And how did that that sort of trip sort of adapt you into going back into London again? Yeah, again, I think it's it was really hard. And also I got the, the train, the overnight train. So you literally get in at 7am um, when all the commuters are going to work. And it was just, and I didn't have any other stuff apart from what I'd been wearing because I didn't have room for anything else. <laughs> so I was just walking through Euston Station at 7am, literally just a mess. Um, yeah, I think coming back is always hard, always hard. Um, especially if you've been that detached from modern life. Like I didn't even really know what was going on in the news, apart from a few people I met on the way and I'd ask them, oh, what's going on in the world? Um, Yeah, it takes a bit of time to settle back in. Yeah, it's sort of, I remember when I got back from one of my runs and Friday I finished, then on Monday I was back into work, taking the tube, 8 a.m. rush hour and suddenly I was just like, it really does come over you. I don't know how to explain it. You just get this kind of overwhelming, I don't know, feeling, isn't it? It's it's really strange. It, t- it takes a while to sort of adjust back, I always find. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. To kind of get and back is, in the routine. Yeah. And is there a sort of plan for the next one? Yeah, definitely. I've got lots of plans. I actually had another one planned um, in Ireland, which was all funded for, and then obviously COVID happened. Um, so that one is following in the footsteps of um, an old Irish pirate queen who's really, really epic. She's called Grace O'Malley, and um, 
She was from like the 1500s, so I would just love to get into that history and see what they actually had back then. I don't even know what they had. But because she, yeah, she was a, a, she traded a lot overseas, so she actually had a lot of stuff from Africa. So her little bit of island, you know, her castle apparently was full of spices and different animal skins and all this kind of thing that the rest of Ireland didn't have. Um, And yeah, she was quite famous because she was the only female clan leader kind of in history. Um, And I really want to recreate a journey she did in a boat to Greenwich, uh, where she met with Queen Elizabeth. Um, So that's definitely one I want to do. And also Freya Stark um, in Iraq and Iran. Um, So I'm working on that one at the moment. So hopefully that will be next year as well. Um, Uh, And there might be another Scotland one next year too. Um, So Freya Stark, what did she do in Iraq? So she was a bit of an archaeologist. So she actually... Um, went round looking for archaeology, basically. Um, but she did lots of other stuff as well. But she wrote a book called The Valley of the Assassins, which is quite famous, actually. It's one of the more famous female explorer books because they've all got all these amazing books, but no one ever really bought them at the time. Um, so, yeah, so she went and did that, um, went all through there, which is Iran, which is actually, it's been quite hard for British passport holders to get into recently. But I think it's changing this month actually so hopefully we can do Iran and then she also went to Kurdistan which is the bit at the top of Iraq um which is beautiful mountains and she just traveled around there um yeah looking for archaeological sites basically um so I'd love to do that and follow in her footsteps as well um so yeah there's lots I mean I've got a list now of about 50 women so it's endless (laughs) yeah I suppose once you find one or two suddenly they all come you suddenly find this amazing collection because over history you do hear these sort of stories about these incredible women doing amazing stuff from flying, driving, doing these incredible hikes and all sorts and they're there to be discovered. Um, But as I say, the sort of publicity back in the day was a bit more difficult. Yeah, and I think... Yeah, it was very, obviously the guys, the the men got all the glory, but I always say these women have it. And a lot of them disguise themselves as men as well. They would dress up. One of them got on a boat, a sailing boat full of men for six months and pretended to be a man. And I don't know how that's possible, but she did because otherwise they weren't allowed to go a lot of the time, Um, which again is fascinating that they would do that just to kind of go on a trip somewhere. It's, yeah, it's incredible. Um, So yeah, there's a lot of them yeah <laughs> wow god what a what an absolutely incredible story and the, it was one of the reasons when i sort of discovered what you did <laughs> i was just so keen to sort of hear the story about it because it's such a cool way of recreating these adventures oh, from the past you. but you do take it to quite an extreme <laughs> <laughs> <I know. laughs> but that's the fun bit right <laughs> yeah, exactly. and that's the thing it's i think um like- Sorry, yeah, no, other pe- I think other people have also, you know, followed in these women's footsteps and kind of highlighted their journeys. But again, I think it's so important to do it with what they had because that's just showing how hard it was. Um, and I think we kind of forget that now because we've got all our amazing equipment. Don't get me wrong, I love a, I love a North Face jacket. <laughs> but I appreciate it even more now. <laughs> no, I know, I'm sure, especially with the itchy tweed or whatnot. yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's been absolutely incredible sort of hearing these stories and 
There's a part of the show where we ask the same five questions to each guest each week. And this is probably going to be a bit difficult, this first question, because it's what gadget do you always take with you on oh. your adventures? Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, I do have, it's not a gadget, but it's a wooden comb. Okay. And um, a tiny little mirror um, that's actually completely ruined now. And this mirror has been through a lot with me. It's, it's been to festivals. It's, and I got it in like my stocking. My dad put it in my stocking when I was really young and it's completely ruined now. But I always have this tiny little mirror that's actually only got half a mirror left in it um, and my wooden comb. Um, so those two things, yeah. Yeah, when I saw, when I was sort of about to read it, I was like, "Gadget, mm, this is going to be difficult." When you she get goes some people talking about, yeah, you get some people <laughs> talking about camera lenses and <laughs> things like that. Exactly. Um, what about your favorite adventure or travel book? Oh, oh so now I have lots, um, but yeah. So obviously, it's my journey to Laza by Alexandra David Neal. Um, but I've actually been reading so many now. Um, and I just read a modern one called The Salt Path by Raina Wynn. And I think that might be my new favourite book. It's absolutely amazing. Um, so obviously the old books, but yeah, that's probably my new favourite travel book. And she walks all around the southwest coast path um, of the UK. And it's just so, it's so beautifully written. And it's made me want to go and walk all around there. Um, oh, nice. So maybe I'll do that yeah. in my spare time. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, around the sort of Jurassic Coast area. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I'd love no, to do yeah. that. Uh, why why are these adventures important to you? Oh, I think well, they're important because it's kind of shining a light on these women that were kind of forgotten um, all those years ago. And still now, I think they're becoming more forgotten. So for me, it's just really about highlighting their story. And also, I guess, just trying to inspire people to go and do their own adventure. Like I said earlier, you know, you don't have to wear a chair on your back and go to the Himalayas you can do anything and I really believe now I mean obviously it's been proved that you know how nature can help your mental health so even if it's just going to a park for a little bit of time things like that I just yeah I think that's kind of just to show that as well yeah I I think that's so true it's the idea of adapting and getting outside because it's so easy nowadays to sort of be inside to be on your phone and unfortunately sort of social media and all sorts are they're just such easy conveniences and it's so easy to be on your phone suddenly for like 20 minutes half an hour yeah scrolling through and be like where did that just go absolutely and I'm guilty of it too like I actually hate social media but I do it because but I end up yeah scrolling and scrolling and I have to be really strict myself but it is addictive and sometimes you just need to put it away and yeah yeah get outside (laughs) especially the last year it's been really tough so yeah yeah no they they know it's addictive so i mean they're designed to be they're designed to be yeah yeah definitely (laughs) that's why you're sort of like oh that's 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 cool that's interesting and you get in a little rabbit hole looking at people you don't want to look at oh no (laughs) horrible the joys yeah i think it's so important to sort of put it down go outside go for a run go for a walk whatever it may be and um, just give yourself the opportunity to have that time and space to yourself. Yeah, absolutely. It's so important. Definitely. What about your favourite quote? Oh, well, I know that one. I vowed to show what the will of a woman can do. 
Alexander David Neal, 1912. <laughs> 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 yeah, that's probably my favourite quote, I would say. Ah, uh, very nice. Yeah. And finally, people listening are always keen to go on these sort of adventures. What's the one thing you would recommend for people wanting to get started? Buy a map that has walking routes rather than roads on it. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I just, so when I first, I'd never organized anything like this. I'd never done something like this. So I ordered all these maps because I was like, oh, I need to look at the route where I can walk. But they're all just right, you know, you, you need to get specific walking, which I'm sure everyone already knows that. Um, but that's something I didn't know. I didn't really know anything about this kind of thing. Um, so that was probably my first light bulb moment. Um, yeah, I would say that. And also that if you think something's not possible, um, I would say it probably is. So just keep keep going, because especially in India, where I wanted to go um all the people I was trying to organize it were like, no, people don't go there. We don't walk there. That's not where tourists go. But I kind of made us go, you know, you just have to keep pushing and then you can eventually get to these places. I think anything's possible, really. If you keep pushing, keep trying. (laughs) (laughs) Perseverance. Perseverance. That's the word I'm looking for. Yeah. (laughs) And finally, what are you doing now and how can people follow your trips and adventures in the future? Amazing. Yeah. So I mainly on Instagram, actually. So that's a good place to follow. And I've got a website as well, which is womenwithaltitude.com. And then the Instagram is womenwithaltitude. Um, and yeah, and then you can follow me trying to get funding for my next my next <laughs> trip. Um, and I put everything on there. So yeah, you can chat to me on there and send me messages or whatever if you've got any questions. Oh, nice. What sort of funding are you looking for? So we're doing two things at the moment. I'm, I'm going out to channels um, at the moment to try and get like a series um, funded, I suppose. So we can kind of highlight a load of these women, which is obviously really, really difficult. So in the meantime, I'm just going to companies. And so, for instance, with the Grace O'Malley trip in Ireland, I've been writing to Guinness, um, who are yet to reply. Um, but just companies like that, because I get a lot of press coverage um, from these trips. So there's a lot in it for them. Um, so, yeah, so I'm just trying to find companies that are willing to kind of sponsor me and um, help me out, really. Um, so, yeah, that's what I'm what I'm doing at the moment. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, because you've been recently all over sort of BBC. Yeah, that was, uh, un- yeah, that was crazy, actually. Yeah, we just filmed a little piece for BBC London, because obviously I live in London. Um, and then it kind of went a bit viral. And I ended up on BBC Breakfast, <laughs> <laughs> which was so funny. But yeah, so it's going really well at the moment. So yeah, now's the time to kind of get on the funding and try and sort out the next trips. Well, it has been such a pleasure listening to your stories. Ah, oh, thank you. I can't thank you enough for coming on today. Oh, no, thanks for having me. It's been great. I, I can't wait to sort of follow your adventures in the future. And hopefully if this podcast can help towards funding. Oh, anything, thank you. <laughs> and any, anyone out there, that would be amazing. But um, yeah, it's just been such a pleasure listening to it. Oh, you too. No, it's been a great chat. So thanks very much for asking me. Thank you for listening. You can watch the podcast on YouTube now and don't forget to subscribe and sign up to the monthly newsletter, which is in the description below. I hope you enjoyed the show. And if you did, tag me on Instagram at John Horsfall. I'm always keen to connect with other adventurers 
and I look forward to next week for another fascinating tale of adventure. But till then, have a great day and happy adventures. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.